Welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And our movie today is one that I have been dying to do since the day I started Staff Picks. This is one that I have recommended to people for years. It's not all that well known. It was at the time, but for a variety of reasons, it's kind of hidden these days. It's kind of unknown, and that's a real shame because this is one that I would put at the top of my list among suspense slash horror movies. It's called, I believe the title is Sporloosh, and we will discuss that later. I'm not entirely sure. It's a Dutch movie. This, I believe, is the first foreign movie I have done on staff picks, if you don't count Canadian movies. Again, Dutch movie. It's subtitled, but it is one of the creepiest movies you are ever going to see. And again, the, the name is Sporloosh, I believe. And the subtitle is called The Vanishing. They remade it in the U.S. a couple years later. It's a piece of garbage. Let's ignore that. But anyway, we're going to be talking about a really scary movie here. And my co-host today, uh, he is a friend of mine going way back. We, this predates even social media. I believe we knew each other back in the late 90s. We were both writing reviews about Saturday Night Live. He's an actor, movie buff, a Los Angeles cinephile. I've been trying to get him on the show for the longest time, and I'm very, very excited he's here. Welcome, Christopher Charty. Hello. <laughs> so, we finally get you on Staff Picks. 80, I know. 85 episodes later, I finally... Chris, Christopher was like the first person I thought of when I started this show two and a half years ago. Really? Yeah, you were the first person. I'm like, this guy talks about movies. He knows as much, if not more, than me, than me about movies. I got to get him on the show. We just could not figure out the right movie for you. Wow. I actually had no idea about that. Um, yeah, that, that's the funny part is we've spent probably, what, a year and a half at least trying to figure out the perfect movie. And I think this is the fourth one we landed on. <laughs> yeah. I think, but I couldn't believe that you you hadn't found anybody to talk about this movie. This is one of my favorite horror movies too. I mean, some might not call it a horror movie, but I, I definitely think this is in the horror genre. Um, definitely one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen. And so you couldn't, you couldn't find anyone else to, to host. Well, I have a couple horror hosts, but they're already lined up. Like they have the next five movies they all want to do. And like, oh, this I wasn't see. on their list. And so like, I, it, I, I want someone this movie to be a, pri a priority for somebody because I feel very strongly. So it, I ran it by you and you're like, Oh, I love that movie. I'm like, that's it. We're doing it. Yeah. And funnily enough, like I said, you're the one that turned me onto this movie in the first place. <laughs> I'd never heard of it. Um, and then I, I don't remember when you, when you did probably about 10 years ago, I would imagine. I love when um, my guests come on here and give me street cred. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I turned you on to this movie and now you're my host for it. I'll be stroking your ego for the next uh, hour. <laughs> yes. That's why I wanted to have you on. You know how the game is played. <laughs> yeah. We've known each other a long time. So, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I am a huge fan of this movie. Um, seen it a couple times. I own the Criterion DVD. Um, I actually watched the featurette with the director, too, and wrote down a couple of notes because there were some interesting anecdotes about this film. Um, but, yeah, yeah, this is a this is a great film that no one ever talks about for some reason. 
Okay, first off, let's answer the burning question. How the hell do you pronounce the name of this movie? And for our <laughs> listeners who may not know what we're talking about, again, it's a Dutch movie, and it's spelled, I will look at my notes here, S-P-O-O-R-L-O-O-S. Yeah, which had me pronouncing it Sporloos for a long time, but it's I guess it's Sporlos. Oh, Sporlos, uh, I blew it. Yeah, I, I looked it up on Google one day. I'm like, I have to know how to pronounce this damn movie. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's it's Sporlos. There are a lot of odd pronunciations uh, around this movie, so we'll probably be butchering <laughs> foreign <laughs> languages for the next hour. But um, I'll try to jai, uh, jump in when I can. Yeah, apologize to all my listeners in the Netherlands as we butcher your language. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is a, a Dutch movie. And again... This is a movie that I recommend to people all the time. And, and the reason why, and this is not so much for you, Christopher, but for my listeners, is that there's a lot of people out there who want to watch horror movies, but they can't handle horror movies. They don't like yeah. jump scares. They don't like gore. They don't like excess. This movie has none of those things. This is just a slow burn, cerebral crazy creepy movie that will sneak up on you won't realize how scary it is until the end but there's not a single horror element until the very end so i'm just telling people that's why i recommend this one this is a horror movie for people who cannot handle horror movies yeah not to you know use a cliche but it is a master class in tension and suspense um and that just that last five minutes wow i mean i i you know it, it's one of those endings where you know what's coming if you've seen it before and it still gets to you every time. I, I was watching this last night in preparation for this podcast, and my hands were sweating in that infamous scene at the end. I'm like, I, I know what's coming, but the way it's filmed and, and the way it's constructed and the, all the lead up to it is just is just really, really effective. Yeah, and this is the point in the podcast where I say, and this is advice that I give out often, if you haven't seen this movie and you would like to, do not listen to us spoil it first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please go out and find it and watch it and then listen to us talk about it. I mean, we'll we'll talk about it. We're going to do a good job because I have very strong feelings. I know Christopher does too. But this is one you need to experience blind. I'm guaranteeing you on that. Yeah, don't rob yourself of the experience of that ending for the first time because uh, it just <laughs> it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And it is it is one of the most uncomfortable endings I've ever seen. Yeah, okay, so from here on out, there will be spoilers, because it's going to happen. Chris is already hinting at some of them, so there will be spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a warning right now. Do not listen to a second more of this unless you want to hear us give away the secret of Sporlosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, of course, I have to point out, this movie was remade. I said that earlier. It was remade. It's okay, so it's a Dutch movie. It came out in 1988. And then in 1990, it was released in America, and it was, I don't imagine, wasn't that big a hit. It was only kind of word of mouth how I discovered it, and that was many years later. But they remade it in America, and it's called The Vanishing, starring Kiefer <laughs> Sutherland and Jeff Bridges and Sandra Bullock. And Christopher, have you seen the remake? No. <laughs> I, uh, you, you told me to avoid it like the plague, and uh, everyone else that I've seen has said, yeah, it's not even close to the original. <laughs> There's only two movies that I've always just hated so much that I want to punch. One of them is Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, which I could not hate more. And the other one is The Vanishing, because it takes everything this movie does and does it incorrectly. 
<laughs> and as we were joking about before we recorded, um, you know, the Wikipedia page for this movie, it just has one line in the lead about the remake. It says, uh, Schlauscher remade the film in English in 1993. The remake was poorly received. And that's all it says. <laughs> yes. That's probably all it needs to say. 9-11 yeah. <laughs> was a bad day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, to put Massive it yeah, to put it mildly, if you like this movie, and I don't know anybody who doesn't like this movie, if you've seen it and you like horror movies, you're like, oh, that one's special. And if you yeah. like this movie at all, you will hate that remake. That damn remake is the worst thing. Ugh. Yeah, I, I, I imagine at some point I'll check it out, just you know, out of morbid curiosity. But I, I you know, I already know I'm <laughs> walking into a, a wall with that one. Okay, so let's go through a little back history here. Uh, what Now, you looked up more on the history of this movie. I will flat out admit, I know almost nothing about this movie's history other than it's based on a book called The Golden Egg, or a story, right. anyway. And right. that's about all I know. I didn't even look up the actors or anything. So what do you know about the history here? Um, well, yeah, it was based on a, on a book by, I think his name is Tim Crabbe. Um, and, and he... Uh, he wrote the screenplay originally and gave it to George Schlauscher, and he let, he looked at it and he said, "Well, this is good, but it's not great. You know, it's not bad." So then they worked in tandem on a screenplay together, and they started having arguments about it. And so um, <laughs> then Schlauscher kind of said, "You know, you're dismissed," and they kind of had a falling out over this. And um, so Schlauscher ended up writing the screenplay more or less by himself at the end. Um, they were arguing about the placement of scenes and uh, how much emphasis they should put on the tragedy aspect of it. And so, you know, in the end, it's it's kind of a I, I don't know if you'd say watered down version of the book, because I, I don't know anything about the book either. But uh, it's definitely different. So that's about all I know. I mean, I, I do have some other notes here because I, I uh, my Criterion DVD has a really cool featurette with the director, and he talked for about 20 minutes about it. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what else to say about it um, before we get into it. Well, you've already you've explain, explained far more than I know about it. So okay. <laughs> you have trumped me easily. Well, one interesting thing I want to say off the top is I guess Stanley Kubrick was a huge fan of this film. Yeah, I heard that. He said it's like the scariest movie he's ever seen. Yeah, yeah. And I guess uh, Schlauscher said, well, what about The Shining? And he said, um, he said, well, that's not frightening at all compared to your movie, which I thought was an amazing compliment. I know you're kind of lukewarm on The Shining. I love The Shining. Um, it's one of my you know, two favorite horror films, but to have that kind of compliment coming from Stanley Kubrick, um, which who I, who I also know you're a little lukewarm on, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know most of his movies. I don't love the shining cause I love the book so much. So that's my main right. thing. But yeah, just to reiterate that for people one more time, the director of the shining says Sporlosh is the scariest movie he has ever seen. And again, <laughs> there's not a drop of blood in this movie and there's no gore and there's no jump scares. Yeah, it really is interesting how sort of mundane this film is, I guess you'd say, uh, which leads me to um, the Siskel and Ebert review, which I, I found last night. Uh, it's just, you know, a little four minute segment. And um, Gene Siskel said that the film didn't work for him because he thought it was too studied. 
and and also too quirky. He th- he thought the villain didn't work, which is kind of insane to me. Um, but Ebert loved the movie, and and he was infamously not you know real fond of horror. Um, but as you said, this is a really subtle movie. It's not bloody at all. It's it's all psychological for the most part. Um, and and I've noticed that the the few horror movies Ebert tends to gravitate towards were were of that ilk. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I know he doesn't naturally like horror movies. I will give a little of my history why I feel so strongly about this movie, and I've talked about this a little before. I think in my copycat episode that my background in college was I was a psychology major, mostly with Mm. criminal psychology, forensic psychology, you know, police psychology, really big into true crime stuff and serial killers. And my senior thesis was on Ted Bundy. So like, Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. I was going to go, I wanted to work for the FBI and be a profiler. This is back before people, most people knew what profiling was. This is back in the nineties. So like I was really early into that whole genre and this movie what I love about it is this movie is about a serial killer and it really kind of documents the step how a person, a normal person can take to go from wanting to possibly kill somebody to going through with it. And it's very accurate. And that's why I love this movie. It's really real. Like this is absolutely, it, it, doc, it dovetails nicely with Ted Bundy's story with the green river Killers story. The stuff they do in this movie is very accurate to how these guys really act and behave. It's really creepy from that perspective. And that's funny too, because I almost majored in psych in college. Um, so that might be another reason that you and I sort of gravitated towards each other. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, tell, I know you're really into true crime and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is, um, well, I know you compared it to uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer once, correct? Yes, that, that's what I was going to mention. Um, you know, I, I've seen Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and I found that one difficult to get through. Um, I, that was one of the few movies I, I couldn't rate because um, it was just – it was too brutal, I think. It, it was probably now, – now, okay, here's a question for you. Which one – uh, these two films do you think is is more accurate or are they about equal i've only seen parts of henry and it's oh. the same reason i don't like super violent movies like that one kind of gets off on the violence it, it does yeah it that's does. why i don't like i don't like stuff like that this one doesn't do that at all this one just presents it exactly how it would happen yeah i, I feel like this is the more real realistic of the two as well yeah, no, without question. I don't like when they sensationalism, sensationalize violence. So yeah, that this I, I I'm not a big fan of Henry, but this one is great because there's no what would be the right word? There's no overt violence. Yeah, and a lot of it is sort of off camera too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they do show you some things, but um, a lot of it is just sort of psychological. It's in your mind. Yeah, and that's the key. It's a horrible, horrible movie that I love to spring on people because it will lodge in your head and it will mess you up terribly. But there's not a single overtly horrible thing except for one tiny scene right at the end. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I would I would agree with that. Yes, and the other thing is that I say, as I always recommend The Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man from the 70s, one of my favorite horror movies, my daughter's all-time favorite movie. This is the movie that I know that's the closest to The Wicker Man. Very similar, just slow-paced, slow burn, lots of setup, lots of puzzle. And then when you get to the end, it's very shocking. And you kind of go back and watch it again. You can see how they set it up. So that's all I will say. Interesting. I I had a – 
you know, rewatching it last night, I, I felt like there were a couple of comparisons, but I mean, it's maybe kind of odd. Like, uh, there's this movie I love called The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. I don't know if you've seen that. I have not. No. It's another sort of deep dive horror movie from the 70s, and uh, just the the location work in this movie and the the atmosphere to it, and and how minimalist it is, um, kind of reminded me of that one where. The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue is sometimes considered one of the more realistic zombie movies. Uh, it's very subtle, not a lot of people in it. Um, that's it. Kind of remind me of this. Obviously, that one's bloodier. Um, this also reminds me of I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a there's a French short film called An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Oh, I know that very well. I read the book and they did a Twilight Zone episode of it. Right. Well, well, the Twilight Zone episode was actually just a French short film that Rod Serling loved so much that he aired on the show. He's like, for the first time ever, we're going to air something we didn't create. Um, so, yeah, I, I love that short film. First time I saw it was as the Twilight Zone episode. Um, so do you, do you kind of see some some similarities between this and that? Well, yeah, just because it's slice of life and it's very realistic. That's that, that's what I yeah. There's a touch of surrealism, too. And and another thing I was going to say is that I feel like this is really almost kind of an art film more than a horror film. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Calling it a horror film doesn't really do it justice. Art film is good. Yeah. Almost a documentary, which I think it's all, like it's a little creepy. Like, yeah, this is like I hate to say it. This is like a training manual for serial killers. It's a little too <laughs> accurate in how to do this stuff. Do not try this at home. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it's especially horrible. Like I can, I've read every book about Ted Bundy. I know his story. This movie is very similar to one of uh, probably Ted Bundy's most famous crime, the one at Lake Sammamish when he abducted two girls on the same day. Like they probably basically wrote this movie based around what really happened that day. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so chilling too. Is just I, you know, I've seen very very few films like this that are that are this accurate <laughs> trying to delve into the criminal mind. I mean, it's, it, it's pretty outstanding. Yes. And again, I cannot repeat this enough. This movie will get in your head and never leave. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, it's just, you, you need a shower after you see this movie. Yeah. But, but again, not in a, a bad, I was at the exact phrase I was going to use, but it's not in a bad way. Like, it's not like this movie's so disgusting. You have to wash it off. Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre always makes me feel like I need a shower. It's kind of <laughs> grimy. And like, I don't, I feel, I feel unclean after watching it. Mm-hmm. This movie isn't quite the same. This movie is just evil. That's all I can say. It's evil. Yeah. And I agree with you that it, it's sort of a, a great horror film like a sort of a starter for somebody Mm -hmm. that that's maybe not interested in horror or, you know, interested in other types, uh, other genres of film, Uh, you know, if they're into art films or whatever, or documentaries. um, Yeah. This would be sort of a good thing to start them on because it's, it's not bloody. It's not gory. And it's, it's very easy to watch, but man, it gets under your skin, especially the further it goes. I mean that. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're gonna jump into the plot in a second. And again, this is a very simple movie. There's only three characters in the movie. It's like a play. It, the discussion's gonna be really fast, but we are gonna do our best to sell this to you. Just because if you know anything about me, if you know this movie, I'm going to relish every minute of of twisting the knife into you as you listen to this plot. 
<laughs> but I will I will warn you, this movie might not be for everybody. It's a slow burn. It's subtitled. You have to read the movie. I don't like my daughter. The first time I showed it to her, she wasn't impressed. She thought it was boring. But she was oh, also God. she was also very young. And then when I showed it to her again just this summer or a couple of weeks ago, actually, and she said, OK, I like it now. I like it a lot better. So it's like you it's not really for everybody. It's it's. It's just a different type of movie. Again, it's not a straight horror movie, but I am I am begrudging you to go out and seek this one out just because I want it stuck in your head like it's been in mine. Yeah, and and, and you know that's interesting because, well, I don't want to waste too much time on this, but you know I kind of I, I, w- I had interest in horror when I was a kid, and then I got more into it in my twenties, and then I really got into it um, about gosh ten years ago, and that's when I started making these really you know deep dive explorations, especially into like seventies and eighties horror. Um, but this, I think this was probably one of the first sort of obscurities that I really sought out. Cause thanks to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. All right. <laughs> just throw, Here throw we go. <laughs> We're going to jump right into, I'm going to call it the vanishing just cause I don't want to screw up the pronunciation anymore, but again, it's called Sporlosh or something. Don't find the American one. If you look up the vanishing and you see Kiefer Sutherland and Jeff Bridges in it, don't watch it. That's the wrong one. Get the Dutch one with people you've never heard of. It's so much better. Yeah, I, I, I'm 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 just going to co-sign everything you say on that, uh, even though I haven't seen it. But everything I've read completely validates what you're saying. Yes. When I feel this strongly about something, I know I'm right. So just just <laughs> nod and nod. It's nod your head. Yeah. OK, so here we go. This movie is the story of a couple. It's a uh, probably in their late 20s, early 30s. I don't know how they, how old they are. Named Rex and Saskia, and they are from the Netherlands. And they're just on vacation, just a nice little drive into Paris or into France. Yeah, that's basically. And this is, you know, <clears throat> as I was talking about earlier, this is kind of what was reminding me of Living Dead at Manchester Morgue too. Is the scenery and everything, and the the location work um, has that same sort of pervasive sense of dread throughout this whole movie would mm-hmm. you agree and and the location is a big part of it because all you see is rolling hills and gas stations and little you know tiny tiny towns yeah it's so mundane creepy. yeah that's what's creepy about it it's so mundane and ordinary and yet it's i think it's a very nice film to look at too would you agree? No, I totally agree, even though obviously it's European. So like you're seeing signs and, and customs right. that we wouldn't know. But yeah, it's, it looks very, you know, typical, just normal people just on a vacation somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they're just driving along. And I don't know how well, again, they're in their late 20s maybe. And as they're driving along, uh, they're kind of bickering. The girlfriend's worried about gas. And the boyfriend says, no, we'll be fine. You kind of get the – you see their relationship early on. And right at the start of the movie, there's a little bit of tension because as they're driving through this mountain road, they kind of run out of gas right in the middle of a tunnel. And it's very – like it doesn't really involve the plot of the movie later on, but it will become important at some point. Yeah, and this is um, one of the interesting things about the movie is there is a touch of surrealism with the tunnel and the golden egg story. Um, Yeah, explain that. Explain the golden egg to people. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Um, Apparently, well, I don't remember too much about it, but I know he he said he had this – was it Saskia that had the dream? Saskia, the girl, has a recurring dream, and as they're driving, she's telling him, I've had these nightmares lately – 
And he's like, oh, what? And she's like, I'm trapped in this golden egg. And I'm just floating through space all alone. And it's scary. And I have this dream all the time. And I'm just drifting. And what's scary is that will that's foreshadowing to where we're going later in the movie. But just for now, just know she's had this dream and she's terrified of being alone and being abandoned. And that's immediately what happens here at the start of the movie. They run out of gas in a tunnel. They fight because they were supposed to be getting gas. He's mad. He storms off to go get a gas at a gas station, leaves her there in the dark tunnel. And she basically freaks out because she has a thing about being left alone. Yeah. And I think this is sort of the, the first hint that... <laughs> Um, the lead character isn't like a, a real virtuous guy. <laughs> like, do you get that vibe too? Like he's kind, he's kind of a dick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, he's not too bad, but there are hints here and there in this movie that he's, he's not a great guy and not a great boyfriend. And I mean, he just straight up leaves her in that tunnel. He's like, she's calling, please don't leave me. And he's just like, ah. I'll be back later. Whatevs. Yeah, whatever. However you say whatevs in Dutch. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, he ditches her and he goes get gas. And again, it's just a minor moment, but it kind of illustrates a lot about their relationship is that afterwards she won't talk to him. And they're supposed to be driving through the countryside and he's kind of mad that she's not talking to him and she's mad at him. And so it takes a while for them to make up. And along the way, she finally keeps saying, you know, you left me alone. I don't like being left alone. You know, I have these dreams that I'll be left alone. And again, it's just inconsequential at the start, but it will have big payoffs later that she doesn't like being left alone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it will have, (laughs) it it will come back in, in several different ways later in the movie. Okay, so here we go. Here we're into the plot again. This is a very, very simple movie. It's all in the style and the setup. Is that as they're driving through, they're in France and they're stop at this like this truck stop or gas station. I don't know what it is, like a little travel plaza. And they stop for gas, and she's going to go in and go to the bathroom and get something to drink. And as they get there, we meet the third character in this movie, who happens mm-hmm. to be standing outside the door to the travel plaza. Here's a nice red flag for you if you know anything about true crime history. Wearing his arm in a sling with a fake cast on his hand, just scoping for girls. Now, tell tell people, who is this guy? Who is our third character here? Uh, this is, um, well, the actor's name is Bernard-Pierre Donadieu. Um, and the character's name, uh, gosh, I can't remember. Uh, Lamorne. Well, his first right. name is Raymond. Yeah, Raymond Lamorne. Raymond Lamorne. Yeah. That's right. I, I have seen this movie dozens of times. I had to look that up this morning to remember what his name was. I always forget his name. <laughs> but our, our villain, our serial killer, is named Raymond, and he is scoping out outside the travel plaza looking for women to help him with his broken arm. Right. It's, it's almost a comedy sketch. Almost. Um, and the funny thing is, uh, in, when, I, when I was watching that featurette with the director, he said that this actor actually had to be sort of corralled a bit. He was a little too method. <laughs> and um, I guess he was being a little rough with the lead actress. And the director had to step in and say, you know, if you keep doing this, you're going to have to answer to me. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he respected him more. But uh, I, I thought that was really interesting. So what you see on the screen isn't necessarily fiction. So this movie was lucky it came out before the Me Too movement, is what you're saying. Yeah, that was, in fact, I was going to ask you, maybe we'll touch on it later, but whether or not this movie could could be made now. It could, just not this way. I mean, there's going to be one scene where Raymond will attack Saskia, and the the actor is literally choking her out and strangling her, and there's real fear in her eyes. So they probably would not allow that now. Yeah, 
that's true. Yeah, that's that's that would that scene would definitely have to be jettisoned. Okay, so all we see we see this Raymond guy, and he's got this stupid little Amish beard, and he's got glasses. He's kind of a goofy looking guy. It's but, almost a Pink Panther character. Yeah, exactly. He looks so <laughs> harmless and innocent, and that's why he's effective. And again, we'll I'll, we'll talk about that more later. Why these serial killers work? Because we're going to see his whole psychology, how he has arrived at the spot, and how he's figured out the perfect ruse to play to attract women into his car. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where I think this really falls into this film really falls into like a character study because this guy is fascinating and, and just and creepy as hell, too. Yeah. He's not your typical over the top serial killer. He's not raving. He's not crazy. He's a normal guy. And we'll talk about this later, who just wants to see what it would be like to kill somebody. Mm-hmm. which is scarier than anything because it implies that there's choice in the matter. Like he doesn't have to kill somebody. He just wanted to see what it would be like. And that's the whole premise of this movie. It's about fate and predestination. It's very interesting once we're going to get into it. Yeah. It's, it, it's this film also works on the level of almost being like a little parable too. That's good. Save that. Let's get back to that. I want to come back or, to that or an allegory. If you prefer, <laughs> So that's it for Raymond. He's waiting outside with a cast, just scoping for women for his perfect prey that he can abduct. And we see Saskia and Rex, and, you know, she goes into the travel plaza. She buys a Frisbee. She comes out. At one point, she wants to drive on the freeway. She's never driven on the freeway before. So he gives her his car keys, his key ring, and this will come in to play later. And then mm-hmm. at one point, she makes him give a promise. She was still so shaken up that he was she was abandoned back in the tunnel that she makes him, she gives a promise. She says... Repeat after me. I, Rex Hoffman, swear that the sweet Saskia Wachter will never be abandoned by me. And he makes the promise, I will never, ever abandon you. And here's the fun thing. This is the last time in the movie we'll ever see Saskia because she will instantly be abandoned. And it's a foreboding shot, too. I mean, it's just, (laughs) as you know, they say on Mystery Science Theater, it's just got that look of someone's last known photograph. The the way it's shot is is beautiful and, and just... I don't know. It gets under your skin. You're talking about the shot as she walks away from him towards the travel plaza for the last time. Mm-hmm. And then she trips, right, too? Yeah. Which is kind of comical. But then she kind of waves. It's it just, oh, it, I, I don't know how they did it, but it's just chilling to watch. Yeah. And again, it's just, it almost feels like a documentary. This is someone's real abduction. You see how it's about to go down. And again, there's no overt violence. We don't see him abduct her. She just goes into the travel plaza, and that's it. She's gone. Yeah, yeah. And there's something interesting I noticed last night, too, is they're listening to the Tour de France on the radio the whole time. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's what it is. And if you listen real carefully, well, if you if you read real carefully, because, you know, um, it's subtitled. Um, the, the events of the Tour de France that they're saying on the radio kind of mirror what's going on in the film, too. Wait, so the cyclists are abducting women? <laughs> not that overt but um but i the, some of the dialogue was uh at this point was hanault's been left behind now he's paying for his repeated attacks all the way up oh wow Th- that's being said as this is all unfolding and i noticed i was like wow that's interesting and then if you keep reading the dialogue for that throughout the movie it, it's kind of working in parallel with the script so it's it's or with uh, the other events. I thought that was really interesting. I've never actually personally noticed that, that you just added a new layer of depth to this movie for me. Thank you. Yeah, this is, as as we were talking about last night, this is one of those movies, the more you watch it, the more you pick up. I mean, I think it's deceptively simple. 
Yeah, so here we go. One of the most universal fears ever where a loved one is missing. Where Rex is just waiting for his girlfriend to come back out. And she never comes back out. And at first he thinks it's cute. And he's like walking around and playing, you know, playing with his Frisbee. And then he starts to worry about her. And then he starts leaving notes for her. And again, you can just, the music here starts getting a little more ominous as you realize, you know, it's all been fun and playful up to this point, but she ain't coming back. And this is also where I think it, it gets into a thing where there's this fine line between the desire to protect your loved one and being completely obsessed and jealous. Because it, this is such a great performance from this actor. W- would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's, he emotes with his face very well. You can read his emotions. Yeah, he has a, for some reason, has a little bit of a Hugh Laurie vibe to him for me, and I don't know why. Yeah, no, he but does. He, he has that very intense look, the same look. Yeah, and he, he captures that line between, you know, desire and obsession really well because he's searching around, but it's almost like he's it's almost like he's more angry at her for being lost. Like, how how dare you? He thinks he she left him. Yeah, that's the thing, because they just had a fight. Mm-hmm. And this will become mm-hmm. important to the story because that's what the cops think. Oh, this was a quarrel. She just left. Right. And so right. no one takes it seriously at first. Yeah. In fact, don't they? I believe they even suggest that he could be implicated, right? Yeah, that's the thing. The cops like you. You could, you could be implicated. We we can't even you know investigate this for twenty four hours. We're just going to let it go. And Rex is freaking out. Yeah, he's going to become very he's very unsympathetic at the start, but now he's going to start become sympathetic because he's going to. And I'll, I'll touch on this a little bit. Besides, you know, serial killers and true crime, one of the other things I've always been fascinated by, and it's kind of a morbid thing to be fascinated by, is missing persons cases. Mm-hmm. And I know and read about these obsessively. Like, I'm not quite Rex to the extent that I'm an obsessive over this <laughs> the rest of my life, but there's a website out there called The Charlie Project, which documents every missing person known in the U.S. history since, like, the 60s. Oh, God. And I read that all the time. Like, I know most of those cases. I know the lady who writes that runs that website. And I just am so familiar with this phenomenon of a loved one disappearing and how horrible it is. And just the fate of knowing something bad happened, but you don't know what. Mm. That's what this movie really captures. That Rex is about to be thrown into a nightmare world here. He knows something horrible happened to Saskia. But he's not going to know what it was, and it's going to drive him insane. And that's very true to life to what happens to these poor loved ones. They, it, like, Their life gets ruined because they, they never have closure. Yeah, and, and I think that's also where it becomes this sort of phil- philosophical piece, too. Is it better to know or not know? And Yeah, uh, that's, that's fascinating. I'll have to check that website out. Yeah, the Charlie Project, uh, the lady who runs this name is Megan, I believe. I've written to her before. She's a... Uh, we're an email correspondence, but it's a really interesting but depressing website, so be careful when you dig in there too far. <laughs> I mean, all those cases are there because they're unsolved. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah, so Rex does everything. He looks around. He uh, asks everyone, did you see this girl? And you know, some people remember seeing her. Someone said she was by the coffee machine. She was with a guy. Like, there's all these sightings of her, but no one really knows where she went because there was 10,000 people at this travel plaza. No one was paying attention. And so Rex goes to the cops. They can't do anything. They don't take it seriously. And basically, he just sits out in his car all night and waits, and she never comes back. And and this is, I think, also where you see that this this guy seems to have a permanently guilty conscience. Hmm. Would, would you would you say that as well? Well, because he was just horrible to her right before she disappeared. That certainly doesn't help. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
But otherwise, he seemed like an okay guy. Like, he's just a normal guy. He just had a fight with his girlfriend. He was, you know, kind of insensitive to her. And then she disappeared, and he blames himself. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is the end of Act 1 of the movie. There's only three acts of this movie, really. That's the first one. The disappearance, the vanishing, the sporloche. Wait, by the way, what does that word mean? Do you know what that word translates to, sporloche? Um, oh, actually, I'm looking at Wikipedia right now. Um, and <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Um, it says uh, literally traceless or without a trace. Ah, okay. Now, uh, the other funny thing is the French title... Uh, translates to the man who wanted to know, which huh. I think is even even better title in some ways because that's really what the movie becomes, you know, about. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Yeah, the, we're we're gonna spoil it, but that is the again the overlying the underlying message of this movie. Do you really want to know what happened? You think you do? <laughs> yeah. I'm not yeah. entirely sure that you do, and this is again why I said this movie will mess you up and get in your head. It's a there's a certain word that I could use that'll spoil it, but I'm not going to. But this, it's, 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 it's terrible. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Okay, so Act Two begins, and now we see Raymond, who is the killer, the guy with his arm in a sling. We see him doing a bunch of mundane stuff, and you don't realize until the second time you watch this movie. I'm kind of spoiling it for you. This is the past. We jump in the past right. here, and we're going to show Raymond's entire story, how he ended up at that mini mart that day. Yeah, in fact, you know, this movie kind of messes with your mind so much that when I watched it this time, I forgot that things were out of order. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I I was watching with my daughter and the other another couple weeks ago, and I was explaining, oh, we're in the past now. And I'm like, I, I shouldn't have had to explain that. You should have figured that out on your own, but I'm just in the purpose of explaining this movie. We're in the past here. We're going to set up that entire first act. This is like act zero now. And I have a feeling that's what uh, Schlauscher kind of, that was the conflict he had with Tim Carvey when he was saying, you know, we had disagreements about where to place scenes. Mm -hmm. So I think Schlauscher wanted this sort of surrealistic uh, disorienting order of scenes. And maybe Tim, I haven't read the original book, so I don't know, maybe the original books that way, mm -hmm. but it sounds like that was more his decision. Um, and I think it works really well kind of, cause you're never really sure. Oh, it takes you a second to readjust. You're like, is this happening now? Is this the past? Yeah, well, this first scene in particular, I think, is so effective and powerful if you know what's going on. Yeah. Because it's very subtle. And here we go. I'm going to explain. And this is, again, like I said, I like to twist the knife into you if you find movies uncomfortable. This one will do it. <laughs> so where Raymond has this farmhouse he's bought out in the country. It's in the middle of nowhere. Oh, yeah. It's his farmhouse. This will be his death lair later in the movie. But <laughs> for now, it's just a house he bought. And he's just a normal married guy. He's got these two teen daughters. And they're having a picnic. He has bought this house. And uh, he is showing it off to his wife and kids. This is our summer home or whatever out here in the middle of nowhere. And as they're sitting there having a picnic... His daughter opens a drawer, and there's some spiders inside the drawer of their kitchen table. And she screams. Yeah. Now, explain this one to people. Let's see if you can sell this one to people, why this is so important to the plot. This is all an elaborate ruse on his part. Um, he's trying to get them to scream to see later on if his neighbors noticed anything suspicious happening at his house. Yes. 
He gets all his daughters to scream, one, but his youngest daughter, then his middle daughter, then his youngest. He makes them do a screaming contest to see who can scream the loudest. Then he has his daughter or his wife scream. Then he screams. And you don't realize until the second time you watch this movie, he's testing the acoustics. <laughs> so when he takes a girl here and murders here, or murders her, he wants to see if the neighbors will hear her screaming or not. Yeah. And, and another thing I noticed last night was as he drives up right before this scene, um, there's a for sale sign by the road and he removes it, which I thought was kind of creepy, too, because <laughs> this is his place now. This is his little. Yeah, this is the death lair. I, th- I like that term. <laughs> the death lair. And again, <laughs> this movie's not graphic. You're not going to see any blood or gore, but it's all implied. And again, he's just he's testing it out. This guy, this is a guy who wants to become a killer. I'm not sure a serial killer or a one time murderer, but he has to test out the logistics of how it will work. And he involves yeah. his family. And this is not the last time he's going to use his teen daughter as part of his planning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this guy is, is just a total freakazoid. But he's so normal. You would never know. Yeah. So normal yeah. looking. I mean, that's even touched on later in the film, too. I Well, we'll, we'll get to that scene. But um... Okay. So, yeah, so that's Raymond's first attempt. He's testing the acoustics, the scream volume at his house, his farmhouse. <laughs> And now we see a shot of him driving down the road, and he sees this hot young hitchhiker. And you get the sense that he's starting to up the ante. He wants to see, and that is what these guys do. That's what Ted Bundy does. That's what Ridgway does. That's what, you know, Dahmer, Richard Ramirez. They start off slow. They start with with peeping in windows. They start with, you know, looking at girls undressing, and then maybe walking behind them and following them, and they gather up their confidence. They gather up their confidence. And that's what this guy's doing. And he picks up this hitchhiker, and you know something bad is going to happen to her but she gets lucky how does she get lucky here oh is oh this is the couple on the road right yeah the couple she gets saved because her boyfriend's there and then he immediately says oh well i was just i just wanted the girl i don't want you bye right yeah bye (laughs) yeah he almost got his first hitchhiker but he didn't because her boyfriend was hiding in the bushes he pops out and and raymond's like nah no thanks see ya so foiled this is also where I think the movie does have a little sense of humor, or maybe we're just twisted. Because, uh, you know, he says that, and then his, you see this hand come out of the window. He just kind of waves as he as he drives away. <laughs> well, I should point out the music in this movie. I don't know if you paid yes. attention. During all his serial killer planning scenes, it's like circus music. Very whimsical and European. Yeah, and there's, I, there's some synthesizers in there. And uh, that's even more disturbing, I think. Yeah, it's very – the tone of this movie is hard to pin down. And, again, it's not evil until it is, suddenly. It will suddenly become evil later. It's not evil yeah. yet. But, yeah, so he's testing all his things, his screams. He's trying to pick up hitchhikers. He does, like, the chloroform experiment, right? That's something else he does? Yeah. He full-on chloroforms himself, times it with a stopwatch um, just to see how long he will be out. Because he's trying to figure out how long this is going to last if he does this to a girl. And then he figures out the mileage back to his house. I mean, every minute detail, he he leaves no stone unturned. Yeah, I'm not not kidding when I say this is a training manual for serial killers. It's almost an irresponsible movie because it's showing all the little steps he takes. If a girl, if I chloroform her in my car... I can drive 27 kilometers in 18 minutes. And he's like, got it all the math figured out. And he figures he adjusts like the chloroform based on his weight because he's, we'll find out later. He's a chemistry teacher. So he knows all the form. Yeah. He knows all the formulas. 
Yeah, I forgot about that aspect of the movie, too. When that scene popped up, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. He's a teacher. Uh, there's, Like I said, there's a lot packed into this movie. Um, it, the first time you watch it, it kind of goes by so fast. The more you watch it, the more you notice. Yeah, and again, it's a only three characters, but it's an hour 40. There's a lot going on. It's very cerebral, very symbolic. And now we see Raymond, you know, start practicing his patter. This is where he starts doing his Ted Bundy stuff where he's, he's, what, what, what's the right word? Rehearsing here, rehearsing what it would be like to talk a girl into his car. Yeah. <laughs> so what's his shtick? His shtick at the start is just, please come in my car. Mm-hmm. Now that's not going to work. I mean, I'm just a layman here. It's the, it's, it's the David Hasselhoff, you know, jump in my car. <laughs> yeah. David Hasselhoff killed hundreds of women back in the eighties. <laughs> Imagine if he was the star of this movie, if he was the bad guy. <laughs> the Hoff. Put a little Amish beard on the Hoff. <laughs> Hofflosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so anyway, his first patter is basically, you see him practicing. It's just an overhead shot of him outside his car, and it's like a little dance. He's figured out how to talk the girl into his car, how to lock the door, how to apply the chloroform. He's got a little spin move he does. It's very balletic, balletic, whatever the word would be. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. But he's not good at it at first. He's terrible. He doesn't really get how it's going to work. He's, like, amateurish. Yeah, and, and I think he's he's really nervous, too. That, that's that's one of the creepiest parts of this movie, is that he's testing all this stuff out. He's not sure if it's going to work, though. Yeah, and that's... To increase the creepiness level a little bit, I'll even say this. He's nervous because you can tell this means a lot to him. Mm-hmm. This is a very, yeah, very important milestone in his life. And we, and at some point in the movie, we do see why it's important. I love the way this movie unfolds. Uh, and, and like I said earlier, the way it's sort of out of order. But I think the way it unfolds is perfect because you get you get backstory when you need it. Yeah, it's it's really well done. I agree with that. It's multiple viewings. This is absolutely a multiple viewing movie. Yeah. And let's go to, again, one of the other creepier scenes in this movie where he starts practicing his shtick on his teenage daughter. <laughs> oh, God. Again, I forgot about this scene. And the, the way he grabs his daughter's nose, did you notice? It's exactly how he would do the chloroform. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, holy crap. Let me, <laughs> let me paint a picture in my delicate listeners' heads that he picks up his... 12 year old daughter from school and he basically does his entire moves that he's going to do on a girl he kidnaps on his daughter where he puts his arm around her when she's in the car locks, locks the, door, the door gets mm -hmm. her in a headlock with his right arm the left arm goes right to her nose and he's just practicing it looks like a loving maneuver of a father tweaking his daughter's nose but it's not <laughs> he's practicing how he's going to adopt a hitchhiker on his kid yeah is creepy as hell and again i totally forgot about that moment in the movie but wow <laughs> <laughs> and his daughter, of course, is non-plush. She's like, why'd you do that? And he's like, oh, I just love you. And she's like, do you have a mistress, Dad? <laughs> she's like, you know, you're always up at the farmhouse. You're always driving around. And this will be the part of the movie where the wife even says the same thing. She's like, why are you always driving around trolling for victims? And or she's like, why are you always putting 30 miles a day on the car? It's, I don't get it. Why are you always driving around? Which... That's exactly what Ted Bundy did. He put so many miles on his car because all he did was troll. That was his entire life was trolling for hitchhikers. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, and the, and so this is the part of the movie where the wife has been tracking the mileage, right? Yeah, the wife is on to him. She's like, why are you driving around so much? Yeah. And then he just fobs her off with this BS answer. Well, he has a good speech. 
I will. Right, 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 right. There's a speech here which is, sounds fairly ominous the first time you hear it, but it's not until you watch the movie the second time you realize what he's talking about, how awesome this speech is, how creepy this speech is, and I will give it word for word. She's like, why all the driving? What are you doing up at that farmhouse all the time? And he says, well, the farmhouse, it has become a passion. It basically starts with an idea in your head. First, you take one step, then you take the next step, and then you must follow the idea to its, to its logical conclusion. And he's like, eventually, you realize that you're up to your head in something mad, but you don't care because you persevere. You persevere for the pleasure of persevering. <laughs> which is his entire plan. He's step by step becoming a serial killer and he knows it's wrong and crazy, but he doesn't, he doesn't care because he just wants to see what it would be like. But in a sense too, that, that answer is such word salad. <laughs> I mean, like it sounds flower, you know, florid and, and really interesting and philosophical, but he's like, that's not much of an answer. I don't think she got any comfort from that. <laughs> you didn't answer the question. If you had a mistress, <laughs> So I'm waiting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the wife is on to him. And, and now we see him upping the game as he's trying to abduct his first victim. And he drives into Paris or some big city. And you see him just walking. He's got a suit on. He looks like a you know perfectly respectable young man. And he walks up to women and says, oh, excuse me, would you get in my car? And they're like, right. no. <laughs> so he's terrible at it. And that's the thing. We see him repeatedly fail to the point. What happens the last time he like runs into like – Somebody who taught his daughter at, in gym class or something? Yeah, this is his daughter's volleyball coach, and she's kind of creepy, too. <laughs> well, that's the thing. She knows that he's coming on to her. She's like, why are you out here picking up women? She's like, if you need if you need a mistress, go pick up a prostitute. They're easy to find. Go pick up a tourist. I don't know why you're hitting on me. And he's, yeah. like, all creeped out. This tripped me out. I actually had to rewind the scene a couple times because she's telling him, well, yeah, if you're looking for chicks to pick up, you can go to this area. But – we, you know, if you've seen the movie before, you know what he's doing and what he's planning. And actually, there's there's been some scenes before this scene that that hint at what's what he's going to do. So it, there's this dual, you know, there's there's dual layers going on in this scene. She doesn't know he's, you know, planning to be a serial killer, but so she's just like, oh yeah, if you're looking to pick up chicks, you can go to this this part of town. Well, you know what's even creepier, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make you love this movie even more. She's the one who says. Just go to a gas station. It's all tourists. <laughs> She's the one that tells them where to go. Right. <laughs> and so that's the last time. And so he's like, huh, a gas station in the middle of nowhere would have all tourists and nobody would ever be able to identify me. Let's try that. And then do 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 do. Now it's him standing outside the gas station as Saskia walks by. I, I got to say, I hope people don't think we're nuts because we're sitting here laughing at this movie. <laughs> I'm laughing at how effective and how evil it is. That's what I'm laughing yeah. at. Like, it's not funny. I'm laughing at how it digs the, the te its talons into you and it will not let go. And I think we both have pretty dark senses of humor, too. So, I mean, if you're really into this movie, you can you can kind of see a little bit of the humor in it, too. Yeah. We will not be laughing when we get to the end. I can assure you of that. Plus, we just have to laugh because it's so horrifying, you know. It's terrible. Everything that happens in this movie could happen in real life, has happened in real life, will happen again in real life. This is how these types of crimes happen and how these guys start. This is very textbook.
All right, so that's it. We see Raymond's whole story, how he became a serial killer, how he worked up. He saw the idea in his head again, and he just followed it from one logical step to the next, and now he's here. He's going to abduct Saskia. So now now we're back in the future, and now we've jumped three years ahead, and Saskia's been gone for three years, and Rex is just a broken man at this point. He's been looking for his girlfriend for three years, and he's just shattered. Yeah, he he's he's a totally broken man. He's he's disheveled even too, and um, he now he has he's dating a new girl, and this becomes a problem too. Now, could you remember her name without looking it up? No. <laughs> <laughs> there, there there is a fourth character. Her name I had to look it up. It's Linica. Oh God! Does he even address her by name in the movie? He does. I don't think he does. He does, he does. address okay. her, but I had to look at the subtitles, and then he types her name on a computer at one point. But her name is Linica. Right, the computer. Oh, that was tripping me out too. Yeah. So that's his new girlfriend, and they have a you know moderately healthy relationship. But right from the start, we can tell Linica is fed up because she wants him to move past his old girlfriend who got abducted, but he can't. And she already is fed up, and this is going to be a lead to a real quick breakup, is that all Rex talks about is Saskia, and he just walks around, he puts up posters for her, he's obsessed with doing what happened to her, and, you know, he's spent, I think at one point they say he's spent 100,000 francs on this campaign to keep her name in the news, and everyone knows him as the Dutch guy who's still missing his girlfriend, and his, and his new girlfriend is fed up. She's like, could you just move on? Look, she's gone. And Rex is like, I can't, I cannot let her go until I know what happened to her. Yeah. Yeah, and again, he's not the greatest boyfriend, <laughs> even to this girl. I mean, it's just like it becomes it becomes worse later on in the movie. But uh, I, I, this whole act, I guess this is this is the second act still, wouldn't you say? Yeah, we're not. Yeah, this is pretty much the well. There's there's four acts. This will be the third act. Yeah, I I, I think I would agree with that too. It doesn't really fall nicely into the three act structure. Um, but yeah, the, the, this whole section with this other girlfriend, I think is fascinating. <laughs> she puts up with a lot. She's a very kind hearted woman to put up with this crap. Yeah. Yeah. I think she says at one point, I don't like being in a threesome, which is a good line. Yeah, that, that was a good line. <laughs> So we find out that Rex has been haunted over his girlfriend's disappearance for three years. His new girlfriend is fed up with it. And all along, the killer, Raymond, has been taunting Rex by sending him postcards and says, I want to meet you. I want to talk about it. I want to explain what happened. And every time he's, they have a meetup, Raymond bails. He doesn't show up. The killer doesn't show up. And so Rex has been betrayed four times, and it's driving him mad. And now we get, I think this is the fifth time, they say. He gets a postcard. I want to meet you at this cafe. And so Rex shows mm-hmm. up, and Raymond doesn't show up again. And it's just, it's breaking Raymond. Rex is just going crazy. Now, is this something else that, that serial killers tend to do? Is they they torment? They tend not to. They tend to in uh, like movies and stuff and in TV shows. In real life, most serial killers don't want to get caught, so they won't. That's what I would think. Yeah, they yeah. won't be this overt. This is kind of a movie thing. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I know because the Green River Killer Gary Ridgway sent a a taunting letter to the cops, and they just thought it was a hoax. So that's the problem. They don't always get taken seriously. <laughs> Mm, okay. Yeah, but this is kind of a movie thing. And we see the scene of Rex sitting in the cafe looking for the killer who's supposed to meet him. The killer never shows up, although you see Raymond over in the corner just kind of watching him, kind of a creepy scene of him in the background. I love that shot. Is this the scene where where he's also on the balcony looking out? Yeah, we see a couple scenes of Raymond just watching yeah. Rex. Yeah, it's just... Again, this isn't my favorite part of the movie. I want to skip past this at the end. This is the part where it bogs down a little bit, the taunting. 
But eventually, Raymond will come and meet Rex. The killer will meet the boyfriend because he knows the boyfriend's obsessed. And the boyfriend goes on the news. He's had this campaign to keep Sask his name in the news. And the boyfriend gives interviews. He's like, I just want to know. I don't want to arrest you. I don't want you to go to jail. I don't care about that. I just want to know. It torments me what happened to my girlfriend. And I'm so obsessed. And eventually, Raymond feels sympathetic, I believe. He kind of admires the persistence of this guy. Yeah, yeah, almost grows to like respect him in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is also this is also tripping me out because they're just sitting around watching this on TV. <laughs> they're watching Rex on TV talk about it. This is a scene, right, where where uh, Raymond's with his daughter. Yeah, they they after Rex was supposed to meet the killer in this plaza, they sent out a TV camera. And the TV camera's like the killer could be anyone here in this plaza. And at home, you see Raymond, the killer, with his daughter, and the daughter's like, "Hey, look, there we are. We were in the plaza." Yeah, it is so creepy. I mean, because for a split second, you almost think, "Does she know what's going on?" <laughs> but but I, I don't think so. But it's I don't know. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah, it just shows how this killer has been revolving around Rex for quite a while and just circling him, waiting to move in. And this is where we learn. So Rex. OK, so this is where Rex's girlfriend dumps him because he cannot abandon the idea of his missing girlfriend. And Rex admits that he's had these dreams. He goes, my girlfriend, Saskia, used to have these dreams about a golden egg, how she was trapped and floating through space, abandoned. He's like. I've started having dreams, too, where I'm also in a golden egg, and we somehow meet up in the universe. We float around, and we meet each other again, which is, sounds all hopeful, but it's not. That's a horrible dream when you find out later what happens. <laughs> yeah, it's just merely foreshadowing for what we're going to get hit over the head with in the in the last part of the movie. Let me put it this way. You do not want to be trapped in a golden egg. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Uh, so yeah, Rex gets dumped by his girlfriend, and this is really, we're going to go into the last part of the movie, Act 4 here, where Raymond now comes and meets Rex. He waits outside his apartment one day, and again, we're three years into the disappearance, and Rex has been tormented it for years, he's been on the news, and Raymond meets him right outside his apartment and says, I'm the person you're looking for, I took your girlfriend. Now, was this was this after or before the computer scene? It's right after the computer scene. You can explain that. I kind of skipped over it. Explain that one. I, I, I was trying. I had to watch it a couple times. So he's I, – I think the in, implication is he he has met different girls through the years, including this, this last girlfriend he had. Mm-hmm. And he has some weird sort of code <laughs> in his computer, and it, it magically sort of turns all their names into Saskia. Yeah, it's like a 1982 Apple IIe computer. It's like a right. little black book of girlfriends. But every time, time he types in a name, the word Saskia pops up on screen, just reminding. It's like a symbolic of what's going on inside his head. He cannot forget this one girl. And, and again, another little touch of surrealism, I think, with that, with that shot. But that was really tripping me out. I, like I said, I had to watch that two or three times. Like, that's, that's really creepy. That's probably half the budget of this movie, just getting that Apple IIe <laughs> program to spit out Saskia <laughs> randomly across the screen at all times. Especially in 1988. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Raymond shows up, and he meets Rex, and he says, I'm the man you're looking for. And Rex is like, no, you're not, because Rex, we learn, has been getting tips from, like, psychics and cracks. And again, this happens in real life, too. The cops get inundated with these morons that want to confess to crimes they didn't do. Mm. And Rex gets postcards all the time. Look, oh, Saskia's in a brothel. Oh, she's, you know, an ambassador now. Oh, I saw her in America. Like, he gets these all the time. So he doesn't believe this guy who is who he says to he is. And then 
Raymond pulls something out of his hand to produce to prove that he is who he is. What does he pull out? The keychain, of course. The keychain that Rex gave to Saskia right before she got abducted. And, and again, it's almost like Rex is more pissed off about the not knowing than he is Saskia's welfare. Yeah, so Rex, he knows. He knows at this point that Saskia is dead. But again, he's more upset about the not knowing, about the uncertainty. And this is where Raymond, the killer, offers him a proposal. And he says, Rex says, is she dead? Like, oh, I know you killed her. You're the one. And Raymond says, well, I'll tell you what happened to her, but you have to come back with me to France. Get in my car and you'll know everything. Now, do you think that he thinks she's dead for sure? Or does, or is it sort of up in the air? Well, he implies many times he's assumed she's dead. Like, he's not really offering hope that she's still alive. But at one point... He says, what does he say? He says, I have to decide would I rather her be alive and me not know or her be dead and me know. And I would rather her be dead than I know. So he's kind of resigned himself to that. Yeah. The killer has offers him a one time opportunity here. Get in my car, drive with me back to France because they're in the Netherlands here at this point. Come with me and I'll explain what happened. And Rex is like, hell no, I'm not getting in your car. And Raymond's <laughs> like, OK, fine, whatever. This is a one time opportunity. That's it. I'm getting in my car. And so Rex decides because of all his obsession, he has to know. So he gets in the guy's car. And one thing about this, this scene that I got hung up on. In fact, I, I think, again, I, there were several moments in this on this rewatch that I, I had to watch things two or three times in a row. Watch how perfectly he shuts the um, driver's side car door when he gets in. It's just this very creepy fluid motion uh, just almost like every aspect of this is planned you know to a t yeah and and again raymond the serial killer is now driving rex and he says you know i knew i knew you were gonna go with me and rex is like why i could have just called the cops i could have had you arrested and raymond's like you could that yeah, i'm sure you could but you would never know i would never tell what happened and i'm banking i'm placing a bet i'm betting on your curiosity that you want to know what happened and you're not going to turn me in and rex begrudgingly agrees with him he knows this is a bad idea but he does want to know what happened and again i should point out the killer here is not very threatening He's not like a big, strong guy. So Rex yeah. is not scared of him. Rex will go with him, and he's not scared of this guy. He just wants to know what happened. This whole back half of the movie is just a game of brinkmanship between between these two characters. Yeah, and Raymond even points out, he goes, I thought of everything you do. I've followed your mindset in the news for three years. I know exactly how you think. You're not going to call the cops. You know I have the keychain, but you can't prove anything I could prove. I, I could just say I found it. I have no criminal record. There's nothing you could do. So either you go with me right now and find out what happened, or you're never going to know. And it's, again, just all very cerebral mind games from here on out. And then they, this is where they roll up to, what is it, the border or, or customs? Yeah, they go right. through the, the border. The uh, yeah, they're leaving France. They go through the border. Yeah, and and there's a there's a France. moment there's a moment here where you do think, is he going to try to turn him in or not? Rex, yeah, Rex will not turn him in. He has a chance, but he doesn't because again, if Raymond goes to jail, Rex will never know, and Rex's life is so ruined, he has really nothing left to live for. He has to know what happened to Saskia. Yeah, it really is like a fast. It becomes like a fa fascinating philosophical dilemma. Okay, so here we go. Raymond will start telling his story, how and why he became a serial killer, and uh, it all start. It started when he was a boy, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, explain this to people. What what was his first discovery here? Uh, well, let's see. He was on the balcony reading, I believe, a physics book, right? Well, yeah, he says, it started when I was six years old, and we immediately cut to a scene with a kid who's about 14. Played by Crispin Glover. <laughs> not six years not old really. at all. He's no nowhere not, near six. <laughs> we'll call him not Crispin Glover, but that's all I could think of. Yeah, so there's a Raymond as a boy is sitting, he's doing his homework on a balcony on this ledge. It's about 20 feet off the cement above a, a little plaza. And he started thinking, he's like, what if I jumped off this plaza? Mm -hmm. And we get very philosophical here because what does he say? Like, To go against what is predestined, one must jump. Yes, because it's predestined, he wouldn't jump. Most people will not jump. He's like, mm -hmm. but if it's predestined, I won't jump. What if I jump? What if I just show that fate can be altered and I can change? And it's all about that you can do things that change your fate. So it's, he's very cerebral for a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. He says, I control that. I control my behavior. And he says, he explains, I'm different than most people. And he explains, I am what you would call a sociopath. <laughs> now, I'm not entirely sure he's a sociopath. Like, if he's never shown cruelty to people before, yeah, I find it hard. I, I disagree with that assessment. But in 1988, you might call him a sociopath. I kind of disagree with that a little. What, what, would, you, what would you classify him as? This is why I think it's even, even creepier. I think he's just a normal dude who wants to know what it feels like. Mm. I think that's even scarier. In your studying of serial killers, can you think of anybody that's that's similar? Like like just like that, just killed just to see what it's like? Yeah, but they start younger. That's what Gary Ridgway did, that's what Bundy did. They all just start killing to see what it's like, but they start younger. Like this guy's in his thirties or forties. Yeah, he's pushing forty for sure. Yeah. So you don't just start <laughs> at forty killing someone to see what it's like if you're a sociopath. It's really just and again, this is why I think this is creepier. I think he just is curious. He's a normal person, and anybody has this capacity if they just want to see what it would feel like, and that's why I think it's even creepier. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> – I hate to say this. I don't want to give anybody ideas, but <laughs> if you were to kill a complete stranger you had no ties to whatsoever, it's almost unsolvable. Oh, boy. <laughs> Unless there's CCTV, like, that's what Bundy knew for years. He'd never have a tie to anybody, so he's unsolvable. There's no way to make the connection. So I think that's what this guy is banking on. He's like, I just want to see what it would feel like. I want to, if it's fate has predestined me not to kill people, I want to kill someone just to see what it would feel like. And I think this is the, this is the same scene where he's just kind of droning on and on about his life story, right? And Rex is sitting there, and really all he wants to know is, did you have sex with Saskia? <laughs> yeah. It's like Monty Python. Skip ahead a bed, brother. <laughs> Get on with it. Did you rape Saskia? Which is a perfectly logical question. And the guy's like, easy, we'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> Chill out, cowboy. <laughs> he's like, wait a minute. I'm telling you my life story. Don't you want to know how we got here? He's like, you know, he's that's, that's the fascinating thing is he is totally in control of this situation. He's like, he's going to make him wait as long as he wants. Yeah, because that's the thing. This doesn't end until Rex knows. So Raymond mm -hmm. can go on as long as he wants. <laughs> yeah. So Raymond, and this is the part that's very accurate to the way these serial killers and sociopaths work, is that we get a flashback to, you know, Raymond said, you know, I jumped off that, bri that bridge just to show when I, when, that I could control my own fate and I can change my destiny. And he said 26 years later, something else happened. Now, what was this? Oh, oh, this was the drowning girl. Yes, right? the drowning girls. Explain that scene to people. 
Uh, well, he's <laughs> Raymond is out walking the family man that he is. He's out walking under the bridge. And then um, he sees this young girl drowning in, in this little was it a river, I guess. Yeah, like a little uh, slough or something. And he decides to to show his daughter um, that he's a, that he's I, I can't remember how they put it. He's a hero. Right, right. Yeah, Raymond is out with his family. He sees a little girl drowning. He jumps in the water to save her, and he has saved a life. And it's amazing. And again, this is why I think this movie's creepy because it's accurate. This is this ties in with Ted Bundy's story as well. Ted Bundy was a lifeguard. He had saved people's lives oh, before. Oh, I didn't know that. Because that's the thing with these really creepy sociopaths. It's not even so much the killing that's exciting. It's the control they have over somebody else's life. I see. They get the same rush out of killing someone as they do out of saving someone. And so this is that pivotal part of the movie where he decides, you know, my my young daughter thinks I'm a hero now, and now I... I need to to prove how does he put it? I need to prove that I, I can be not a hero, something like that. Yeah, well, there's yeah, there's two really interesting quotes here. He saves the girl and then, you know, everyone calls him a hero. And he's like he warns his daughter. And I love this quote. This is such oh, a great I love quote. This. I wrote this down, too. He tells yeah. his daughter, watch out for heroes. A hero is someone who is capable of excess. Mm hmm. Oh, that's so good. That's so fantastic. I love that. So. Now, that's, that's interesting because I think you might have a different DVD than I have because mine had a different uh, translation. What did yours say? It, it was roughly the same, but it said, never trust a hero. A hero is capable of rash gestures. Oh, that's a different subtitle than I have. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. interesting. Excess and ra rash gestures. But yeah, and he has pointed out, he's like, you know, I've saved this girl and I'm a hero, but I didn't feel like I deserved the right to be called a hero because he's very philosophical, this killer guy. He's like... Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I have to test this out. Am I indeed a real hero or can I do something super evil to balance it out? Because I'm no hero. I'm just a normal dude. And he's like, if it's predestined, I am good. Then I must do something evil to try to balance that out because you cannot have white without black. It's kind of a yin yang thing. And so he thinks if saving a life is the best thing I can do. What is the worst thing I can do to a person? <laughs> so it really is just a game to him. That's the creepiest part of this. It's like this philosophical experiment. Yeah, there's no biological drive for him to kill. It's just to see if he can. Mm -hmm. That's so creepy. I'm telling you, movies <laughs> don't do that before. I mean, yeah, most <laughs> movies do not do it that way. That is so much creepier when he's just a normal dude who just wants to see what it would be like. Yeah, he's just messing with people. Yeah, it's an experiment. And again, <laughs> this is he's a science teacher. We learned that this guy Raymond's a science teacher, and he's like... What is the worst thing I could do to a person to balance out saving a person? And I'll give you a hint. Murdering someone isn't the worst thing. There's worse things to do than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there sure is. I'm setting you up. Yeah, I'm telling you, if you don't want nightmares, don't listen to the last 20 minutes of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, just think, what could be worse than just straight up killing somebody? There are, you know, your mind will wander into some, some areas. <laughs> All right, so here we go. So Raymond is driving and explaining his shtick to Rex, and he's like, and I, you know, I learned that I wanted to abduct a girl. And we go, you know, we talk about this whole earlier part in the movie where he's learning his little patter and his serial killer shtick. And he's like, 
I had this shtick where I needed their help hitching a trailer to my car. And we see lots of shots right. of him. It's so stupid. He's got this trailer that weighs like four pounds. <laughs> and he's going to these women. Oh, can you help me? I'm so weak. I can't lift the trailer. And like he's. And this this is where we get more goofy French music too. Yeah. Boop 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 boop. boop. <laughs> I really do think there is sort of a sick sense of humor buried in this movie somewhere. Well, yeah, I mean, because the director knows how ridiculous this whole setup is. But it's, again, he's just setting you up for the kill at the end when it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so he's trying to hitch up his trailer to the car and these girls don't fall for it because he's so strong. Look, he's a like, big guy. And he, why would he need a woman's help for physical labor? Although I will say that's how Ted Bundy abducted those two girls the day at Lake Sammamish by saying, hey, can you come to my car and help me load a sailboat onto my car? It, you know, it's the same thing that um, Buffalo Bill did in, in uh, Silence yes, of the Lambs. exactly. Help me move some furniture into my truck. Yeah, and that's, all, van, based, that's right? all based on Bundy. Yeah. Oh, wow. Weren't you about a size 12? <laughs> Now, would you say the 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 uh, Raymond in this movie is about as creepy uh, as like Hannibal Lecter or Buffalo Bill? I think he's up there. Yeah, he is, but in a different way. In a different way, for sure. Yeah. Like that's the thing. You wouldn't want to be in a room with Hannibal Lecter. You'd be worried for your safety. You wouldn't be in danger around Raymond, and that's what makes him creepier because he mm-hmm. can control that. He can turn it on and off. Yeah, but he he is for sure up there with my favorite. Um, I don't know what you'd call them, bad guys in horror movies. Well, it's creepy because he has no rage. Like he even tests, we see earlier in the movie, as he's planning his abduction, he's testing his heart rate because he wants to make sure he never goes up with his heart rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a whimsy to him. I think balletic, balletic was a really good way to put it, too. Yeah, so so we see him practicing his, please help me load this hitch onto my car, and it never works because the the ruse is wrong, and he could not figure out why it wouldn't work. And then (laughs) what happens is he, well, he does say right here, you know, I could have picked up a prostitute and killed her, but I would get no satisfaction out of that because they're destined to become victims. No one mourns them. Yeah, Which is yeah. such a Ted Bundy thing to say. Oh, my God. If you've listened to Bundy, he was like, there was no art in that. There was no challenge. Like, that was the thing. There's a challenge to abducting someone middle class in a safe neighborhood. And Bundy looked down on other serial killers for that. Oh, boy. And this this is also the part where he realizes this ruse is not going to work because he, he messes with the wrong girl, right? Where, where his her boyfriend comes up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because Raymond needs help lifting a four-pound trailer, and the boyfriend comes over. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? What are you he, trying to yeah, pull he here? <laughs> so then we cut to a scene where he's trying to, to um, come up with a new scheme, and there's another creepy line here. He says, it wasn't the trailer that should be heavier. It was me that should be weaker. Yeah, he's about to go full Bundy. This is where he gets the idea for the arm cast, right? Yes, and again, this was Ted Bundy. This is exactly what he did. And Raymond Raymond is trying to figure out how to pull off this ruse to get girls to feel bad for him and help him with physical labor and go over to his car. And he's going on his birthday. His daughters give him an album, This Is Your Life. And they show they have a picture in his album of when he jumped off the balcony as a kid, broke his arm, and his arm is in a sling. And he sees the arm in a sling, and he gets a big grin on his face. He's like... That's mm-hmm. the key. The, the The trailer doesn't have to be heavier. I have to be weaker. And from here on out, his ruse now is includes a fake cast on his wrist and an arm in a sling, which is 100% exactly what Ted Bundy did to get girls to come to his car. 
Wow. And, and what a creepy thing to, for that to come into his head when he's looking through an album of <laughs> pictures of him as a child. That's the first thing that comes into his head. Oh, I have a new ruse now. Yes, his eureka moment. <laughs> a little light bulb goes off. <laughs> and so now we flash forward to the actual abduction. And this, again, this is the almost the end of the movie. And now we see how Saskia was abducted. Sure enough, Raymond was there, and he was at the, the uh, travel plaza that day. His arm was in a sling, and he saw Saskia. So, yeah, so he sees Saskia. He wants her, but he can't get to her because she's surrounded by too many people. He sees this other woman instead, and she, he walks out with his arm in the sling. He says, hey, can you help me? And she's like, oh, sure. And he's like, please, I, I'm weak. My arm is broken. I need this help loading this trailer. And the woman says, oh, sure, I'll get in your car and help you. Yeah. Yeah, she she is very willing right off the bat. She jumps right into his car, and he's shocked. It was so easy. Yeah, so his ruse worked. It worked. And then what? Ha- he's he's going to kill her. He has it. He's going to kill this other girl, not Saskia. And then he has a small little moment right outside the car. He does a little ballet dance. Oh, yeah. He uncorks his chloroform. He puts it in his rag. He's going to walk in and abduct this girl. It's going to be his first kill. But what happens? Something unexpected happens. Well, he starts having like a full-on breakdown at this point. He sneezes. Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, he sneezes, and he puts the chloroform up to his own face, and he's like, oh, I just wasted my chloroform, and he gets flustered. He break, he has a breakdown. I can't do this. This is too much. So I, I guess I didn't catch that, because I, I thought he was I thought he was having like a little like moment of anxiety where he's like, oh, I can't do it, and then he just decided to like cover his face. But I, I didn't catch that he was sneezing, but it, it's a European sneeze. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it, was a, it was with an accent, a little accent grave over it. <laughs> but yeah, I, see, I can't tell either. Either he kind of panics and chickens out at the last moment, or he sneezes. It's hard to tell. But for some reason, this lady's life is spared. He just le- lets mm-hmm. her go. She had no idea she was about to get murdered. And he's like, I can't do this. He goes into the bath, into the rest truck stop, and he's like, he's like rattled. He had a chance to kill a girl. He couldn't do it. And he like throws his sling away. He throws his castaway. He's like, I can't do this. This is too much. And you get the sense he's given up his attempt to be a serial killer. It's not worth it. And just as we think it's all going to end well, Saskia approaches him at the coffee stand, a coffee, a coffee machine, and asks him for change. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she becomes the the perfect victim for him. Now, do you remember the details? I think it's very sad the details of how she becomes the victim. He has a little keychain. She's talking to him, and she's practicing her French, and she's like, you know, I have my boyfriend out there. His name is Rex. And she sees that Raymond has a keychain that has a letter R on it. And then doesn't he he BS her and say, well, I sell keychains, Well, right? yeah, first she offers to buy one. She's practicing her French on him. She's like, can I vend that for boyfriend? And he's like, you want to buy my keychain? And she's like, it has an R on it. My boyfriend's name is Rex. So her love for her boyfriend is what's going to get her killed because she just wants to buy him a keychain. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and Raymond's like, what the hell? This girl's just basically walking to my car. I didn't even have to do a ruse. She's just walking to my car. Well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as they say. <laughs> and this is the scene you talked about. He gets her in the car, and he's like, oh, I sell these R keychains. You can have one for your boyfriend, and she's so excited. And this is – I'm going to say something that will really, really creep people out right here, this scene. Okay. You may not remember this. It's a little detail that I caught you may not have caught. Oh, I, okay. I, I think it's the th- same thing I'm about to say. Okay. She gets to his car, Raymond's car, mm-hmm. and he's like, get in. I have my keychains in here. And she looks around. She knows she's not supposed to get in strangers' cars. But and off in the distance, right? She, well, she sees something in the car that makes her change her mind. Do you know what it is? Oh. Um, 
I don't remember. So I was paying attention to something in the background. Yeah, okay, you're talking about this. There's Rex in the background taking a picture. You can see him, right? Yeah, which I think is also very creepy. That is creepy, but here's the really creepy one, and I will double down on this one and make it extra creepy for my beloved listeners. She sees a picture in Raymond's car of Raymond with his two daughters. And she's like, if this guy has kids, he's a family man. I can sit in his car. He won't hurt me. Okay, yeah, I do remember that now. Do you know that's exactly what the Green River Killer used to do? Really? That's how he got prostitutes in his car. He would have pictures of his son in there, and they oh, would God. be so disarmed by that. One time, this a lot of people don't know this, he kidnapped and killed a prostitute with his son in the car. Ugh. He had a little boy with him. He picked up a prostitute. She didn't feel threatened because he had a little boy. They drove to the woods. He told his son, we're going to be back in a moment. He walked out raped, killed, strangled a prostitute, came right back and drove away with the son. His son had no idea because he was so young. Wow. So the guy Raymond used his kids to lure girls into his car, and that's what got Saskia killed. Jesus. <laughs> well, some people use candy, and <laughs> some people use pictures of their family. Yeah, so if you're an aspiring serial, never mind, I won't give you the advice, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've already learned enough that will get us in trouble. But yeah, that's what gets Saskia killed. And this is the scene you talked about where she gets uh, suffocated and it's horrible. Yeah. But that, but that's interesting that, that I didn't notice that picture of the family or I didn't remember it, but I was focused on Rex all the way in the background taking pictures. And I, I thought that was interesting too. Cause like he's watching the whole thing happen in front of him, but he's not really paying attention. It's happening right there. Yeah. He was looking right at it. He had no idea how close he was to it. Yeah. So, yeah, Raymond does his trick. He Saskia gets her in the car. He locks the door, headlock around her, chloroform right to her face. And the same thing we've seen him do with his daughter when he was testing out his moves. And, again, it's not especially violent. Like, I know trigger warnings. People <clears throat> don't like violent scenes of abductive assaults in movies. Like, it's very sudden. And you see Saskia's eyes when she realizes she's being chloroformed. And you just get this look of terror when she realizes what's about to happen. And you said that was real. That was her real reaction to being attacked. Um, I don't know for sure about that particular scene, but I do know that, that this actor, um, Bernard Pierre Donadieu was a little rough around the edges, maybe a little too method. <laughs> yeah. He really, it was like, he knocks her out with chloroform here and that's her real eyes going out. It's really kind of a creepy scene, but this Very. is not the trick ending we're warning you about. So get ready for mm, it. No, it gets much worse. <laughs> So that's it. So that is what happened to Saskia. He abducted her. He drove the 27 kilometers. He had paced out back to his farmhouse. He yada yada over the best part. And then <laughs> <laughs> and now here we are at the end of the movie where Raymond drives Rex back to the gas station where Saskia disappeared and said, this is it. This is where the drive stops. Do you want to know what happened to your girlfriend, Saskia? And Rex is like, of course. And this is also when they're en route to this gas station, they, he gets stopped by the police, right? Oh, yeah. The, the cops. I thought that was fascinating, too. Yeah, there's a little bit of foreshadowing here about the ending. What, what, explain this scene, why he gets off from getting a speeding t or a seatbelt ticket. Uh, okay, so the cop pulls him over, and he gets out, and he explains that um, he can't wear a seatbelt because uh, apparently he's claustrophobic. And he has a note from his doctor saying uh, that this much, that so he doesn't need to wear a seatbelt. So the police, I guess, are just like, okay, well, that's a good enough reason. <laughs> Off you go. 
Yeah, claustrophobia will soon be a major subplot in this movie, so get ready. <laughs> yeah, talk about <laughs> foreshadowing. Wow. Yeah, so anyway, Rex, Raymond drives Rex to the gas station. It's night, they're in the middle of nowhere, no one's here, and he says, now it's time for you to know what happened to your girlfriend, but you will only know if you drink this. And Rex is like, I'm not drinking anything you give me. And Raymond's like, well, I'll flat out tell you. There's a sleeping pill in there. If you want to know what happened, you will drink this right now, and then you will know what happened to her. And and, and again, this is, you know, this is straight out of allegory for me uh, or, or a parable. Um, it, it, this is where it really takes that sort of like lady or the tiger kind of, kind of turn, I think. Yeah, it gets very full of like – is it predestined that you will drink and no? It will. Is it destined that you won't? It's all about you know choice and fate and mental chess between these two guys. Yes, and I love Raymond's very uh, careful attention to his wording. Drink this, and afterwards you will experience exactly what she experienced. Right. And guess what? As the audience, so will we. <laughs> and 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 the whole thing is kind of just insane on its premise. I mean, it's just uh, on its face, like. I killed your wife, and if you want to know what happened, just swallow this pill. Why don't you trust me? I'm just trying to help you. Well, yeah, and Rex calls his bluff. Rex even says, if, yeah. she, if she's dead, I'm going to die too, right? And Raymond's like, well, you know, it's the only way for you to know. And Rex is like, you're crazy. I don't, I don't want to punish you. I'm not going to call the cops. I just want to know what happened. You don't have to kill me. And Raymond's like, look, dude, this is the only way. I don't trust you. I know I'm, you're, I should trust you, but I don't. And this is the only way we're going to do this. And I, he goes, I'm betting on your obsession. You are going to mm-hmm. drink that coffee with that sleeping pill because you need to know. And he's like, this is your only chance. In less than one hour, all the mysteries of life will be revealed to you, I promise. And he's still in complete control because he knows Rex is going to break sooner or later. And Rex says no at first. Rex is smart. Again, in horror movies, people do stupid things. But at first, Rex is very smart. He's like, no, I refuse. You know, fuck you. I'm leaving. And he storms off. Throws it in his face. Yeah. And so Raymond just sits in his car and waits. He's like, what about the uncertainty? Is the not knowing? It's the worst. Don't you want to know? Yeah. And, oh, boy, poor Rex has a little, you know, conniption fit, a little, you know, moment of rage. He knows this is a horrible – yeah, okay, I know you're laughing at his little temper tantrum. He's Cameron and Ferris Bueller stay off outside jumping, you know, the shot through the car window. He's jumping up and down. That's basically what that scene is. <laughs> poor Rex, though. You know, he's been through the ringer. He knows yeah. he shouldn't do this. I don't want to drink that sleeping pill. I know something horrible is going to happen to me when I wake up. He is not yet aware that there are worse things to happen than being murdered, and that's what's going to happen. And he's like, fine, gets in the car, drinks the coffee, and then he even says, he's like, you know, to go against what's predestined, I must drink, or one must drink. He goes, I drink to her, and Raymond's like, cool, thank you. <laughs> and this this whole segment right right after this, when, when he drinks it and they're just sitting in that car for whatever it is, like a minute or two, is is another really creepy scene. Yeah. And he's like, well, it takes uh, 10 minutes to kick in. And then and then you're thinking, well, are they going to show all 10 minutes of this? <laughs> but no, it, it fades out. But um, man, after he takes that drink and makes that decision, there's just this thing just hanging over this movie. There's this dark cloud. Yeah, all bets are off here. And I'm warning you, if you're easily sensitive, if things bother you, if you have nightmares, be very careful listening to the next minute and a half or so of this podcast. 
Yeah, and and I have I have a heart defect. <laughs> I was watching this last night, and like I said, I was getting a little bit of palpitations. You know, watching this again, even though I knew this scene was coming up, it is a hard scene to watch. This is the first movie that almost killed my co-host. Very exciting. <laughs> At attack a cardia episode. No, <laughs> well, not that bad. All right, hopefully you can make it through this scene. So we fade out when Rex drinks the coffee and he passes out. And when we fade in, it's not the place you want to be. No. I will I will leave it to you to paint a picture, just because I'm, I'm generous like that. Where is Rex when he wakes up? Well, the first thing you hear is audio, and it sounds like he's <laughs> trapped somewhere. Um, and then, uh, you see the, the, he, he lights his lighter, right? Kind of flicks it on. And we see that he is trapped inside a wooden box, buried alive. Rex has been buried alive because that is the worst thing you can do to a person. Raymond, the scientist has discovered if you bury them alive, they suffocate slowly and horribly in pitch darkness. It is the worst thing you can do. And this movie spares no detail as we're in that coffin for a good three minutes suffering with Rex. Buried alive. <laughs> Buried alive. <laughs> Star Trek 2. <laughs> this is the first movie I ever saw where someone was buried alive. And the director, of course, wastes no time in making sure you're right there with Rex as the your camera is right up against the base of the coffin. And you can hear him screaming and beating the... the the coffin and you know this is exactly what happened to saskia she was buried mm -hmm. alive in a coffin at his ranch screaming yet he'd already determined nobody would be able to hear her scream and he probably listened to her scream for a while until she eventually ran out of air the worst possible way to die and that's exactly what just about to happen to rex too and he is slowly kind of losing his mind and 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 he screams i am i am rex right He's just trying to, like, reaffirm himself. That's a, that's his barbaric yop, one might say. <laughs> Reached way back for that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's just sort of pounding on the box, and then I am Rex. And, and, then, and then I think he comes to a point where he's just sort of content. He's like, yep, this is my lot in life. And um, I, I think I, I love where the, the lighter sort of just starts to flicker out. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's morbid but beautiful way to end this movie i'm gonna put nightmares in every single one of my listeners right now <laughs> when the light goes out when you're buried alive in a, in a coffin when the light goes out you're not dead yet you're gonna be there for a while <laughs> yeah. don't make any plans you're not going anywhere have you ever had an mri where you can't move your shoulders oh yes it's the worst. okay so anyway the horrible gut punch ending where this movie doesn't get evil until it does where here's the parable you learn from this movie. You don't want to know what happened to your murdered girlfriend because if it might happen to you too. That's is where yeah. Yeah, it's like the, the monkey's paw here. Oh, I know what happened to Saskia. Oh, this sucks. Right. <laughs> the worst possible outcome you could have. It's terrible. Oh my God. I wish I could have seen this in a the theater to see the audience's reaction oh, to that. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> Because the first time I saw it, like I said, it's probably about 10 years ago when you told me about it, when I read that list you made of underrated horror movies. Oh, yeah. And I was sitting there watching it by myself. I did not know that ending was coming up. 
Yeah, wow. like we said, this is a movie you feel like you kind of have to shower after you watch it because it's kind of gross at the end, and it really makes you uncomfortable. And I mm-hmm. don't get bothered by movies, really. Nothing really bothers me. The first time I saw this movie, and I'm claustrophobic to start with, the buried alive oh. scene will bother you. I'm telling you. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, my hands were sweating last night watching this. And I, like I said, I knew the scene was coming up. But, man, it is just the way it, it comes up, the way it's filmed. And it's only, what, a, a probably a minute and a half? It feels like you're in there for a long time. It's, it's, oh, God, yeah. It feels like a 10-minute scene. It's not quick. I mean, he lingers inside that coffin. You're in there with Rex. You feel the breathing. You hear it. It's it's very, 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 again, not gory. Really uncomfortable, though. I can't imagine seeing this in the theater. And, and I would also recommend anybody watching this the first time, watch it, like, in the dark, or with with like the sound pumped up or or I watched a lot of things with headphones. I was watching it with headphones last night, just sitting here watching it on my computer. And man, <laughs> it is rough. <laughs> First, I thought this movie was going to kill you. Now you're trying to kill my listeners. <laughs> so we've given serial killer advice in this podcast and we've tried to kill you. <laughs> a fine moment in staff picks uh, all your masochistic listeners <laughs> yeah but this movie is the real deal this is one you spring on people if you really want someone to appreciate a scary movie this one will creep you the hell out and it ends with later raymond oh yeah it, yeah the little denouement at the end is almost even more terrifying than what we just saw yeah, Raymond is sitting at his farm with his wife, and his wife is watering these two trees, which you know were planted over the two coffins. Those are like the Saskia and Rex tree, and Raymond just sitting there, and we see there's a newspaper he's reading that says, oh, by the way, remember that missing Dutch girl? Well, now her boyfriend is missing, too. <laughs> two missing. <laughs> and did you see the, the little symbolism here? They show their pictures in the paper in their little ovals, and they fade out, and the two pictures look like two faces and golden eggs. Oh, no, I didn't notice that. Yes, the two golden eggs have met in fate and intertwined. Oh, God, that's even creepier. (laughs) Yes. So we come back with the golden eggs, and that's how the movie ends with their shots and these little oval faces, and then cue credits, and oh, my God, what an amazing, terrible, evil movie. (laughs) And I I love the way that last little denouement is shot, too, because it doesn't explicitly tell you what's going on. It doesn't tell you that they're buried, you know, there's are people buried on his property or anything like that. It's just the way it's shot Mm -hmm. tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. And you get the sense. Again, I keep harping on this. I don't think Raymond ever killed anybody else again. I think he killed Saskia just to see what it was like and if he could do it. And he was fine with it. And then he killed Rex because Rex was stupid and Rex walked right into his trap. But I don't think he ever killed again. This crime is never going to be solved because Raymond doesn't need to kill again. He got it out of his system. Now he's just a normal family guy. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't even think of that. (laughs) Leave it to me to make a movie extra evil. I will always think of the – I will go the extra mile for my listeners. And one thing I, I, I forgot to mention, just one little thing, um, is when they were when they were in that la- that scene, uh, Rex's final scene where they were in the car, uh, Raymond said, she never left you the time to fall out of love, which I thought was a really interesting line. Mm-hmm. So uh, all the way to the end of the movie, they're kind of – it's almost like they're blaming Saskia for her own fate, <laughs> even though she didn't have anything to do with it. We're victim blaming. It's terrible. Right. But just what a what a what a morbid line. Yeah, just a 
bummer of a movie, a gut punch. There's no happy ending. You feel like you have to take a shower. But again, there's no gore. There's nothing gross in it. It's not explicitly mm-hmm. violent or anything. It's just all cerebral and claustrophobic at the end. I don't think there's a single drop of blood in this, is there? Nope, no blood. Yeah. Although, wow. here we go. So... This movie is a masterpiece, and it was kind of this urban legend for years. Oh, have you ever seen Sporloosh? It's so cool. It's got that great ending, and you don't want to spoil the ending for people, but you know, yes, I want people to experience it. Then they remade this movie in 1993. Here we go. Now, can I explain why the movie is a horrible piece of shit that came right out of Satan's anus? (laughs) Please do. Because the movie is basically the exact same story written or directed by the exact same guy except they decided because for the american remake we need a happy ending in the american version rex escapes from the coffin i believe his girlfriend escapes too they stop the bad guy and there's nothing horrible or gut punchy about it it's such crap when you know the original Uh, it's so terrible it makes me so mad i can't believe that george schlauscher actually signed off on that why would he do that well, I mean, there's several answers to that. The one that I think is the biggest one is because he thinks Americans are weak. They cannot handle it. I mean, that's I'm not exaggerating that Americans are soft. They could not handle yeah. a blockbuster movie with a depressing ending. They just couldn't. They, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Yeah. So I think he signed off on it and he just half hearted it because he's like Americans are crap. Who cares? They'll accept this anyway. But that's why I hate that remake so much, because they ruined what made the original special, and that was that extra sense of evil that the bad guy gets away with it. Yeah, that's that. I think that makes the whole movie. It's That's the point of the movie. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's a movie with Kurt Russell called Breakdown, which I like. It's very similar to this. The girl gets, the wife gets abducted, Kurt Russell goes and saves her from evil J.T. Walsh. It's a really cool movie, but it has a happy ending. American movies have to have a happy ending. This movie is the exact opposite of that. What if it didn't work out for anybody and it's even worse than you imagined? Oh, boy. Yeah, I I don't know why you would want to mess with that ending. Terrible. It's absolutely ridiculous. If you have The Vanishing in your collection, the American one, throw it away, please. Just toss it or burn it (laughs) or take a dump on it. I don't care. Just fucking get rid of it. It's, 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 It's an abomination compared to this original, which is a masterpiece. Now, it, does the remake sort of throw out the more artistic elements of, of the original, too? Because I can't imagine it was it was as artsy. I don't remember anything outstanding about the remake. It's set in the Pacific Northwest. It's in, like, Seattle and Oregon, if I recall. So there's uh-huh. lots of woods and stuff and things like that. But it's just, it's not nothing near like an art film like this one. It's just, it, it doesn't even feel the same. Interesting. Huh. So, with that, I've walked you through possibly the most evil movie I have done on Staff Picks, but one that I absolutely love just because it is hardcore, but in a different way. And again, I said that at the beginning. This is a movie that I recommend, a horror movie for people who cannot handle horror movies. It's still going to creep you the hell out, but there's nothing in it that's overtly, you know, like offensive. It's just creepy. And it is a great character study, too. It's a very subtle film. And uh, one of the interesting things that that George Schlauscher said in that interview was, I only believe in gray, not in black and white. Um, So even like I said, even the even uh, Rex's character is a little flawed, a little rough around the edges and not a great boyfriend. And and conversely, Raymond has his moments of levity and, you know, where he's sort of seen like a family guy. And it's a fascinating movie because 
I mean, there's obviously some very, very wrong things going on, but uh, there's a lot of shades of gray, too. And that, I think that's a part of what makes it so damn creepy. Yeah, just a lot of humanity. Like, it feels real. None of these are caricatures. These are all real people that could exist. The situation yeah. could exist. And I know it probably has existed. I know the stories like this have happened in real life. And, like, so many missing persons cases, and you don't really want to know what happened to them, but you kind of do. Yeah. And that's kind of also why I don't really fully understand Gene Siskel's criticism where he thought it was too like too cartoonish. I think he said something like that. Like, I don't I don't really get that at all. Yeah. He's probably talking about that whimsical music during the montage. Mm, where he's training. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I guess so. But other than that, I don't know. <laughs> flawless. This is a flawless movie. Yeah, it, it is absolutely one of my favorite horror movies. Probably probably one of my favorite movies overall. And and I have you to thank for that. I, I don't know if when I would have heard of this movie um, otherwise. So, in fact, I, I don't. I almost like I said, I almost never hear people talk about this film. So it, it's nice to be able to sit down and talk through it with you. If you hear people talking about this movie, it means they know what they're talking about. Because this is mm-hmm. a movie you have to know your horror movie to really know this one. And that's why I really pimped this one out to people. And again, I don't really like or even know that many foreign movies. This will probably be the only foreign movie I do on Staff Pick that's not in English. <laughs> but yet I still love it. This is such an amazing movie. And there's another one, Train to Busan, which came out a couple years ago, that I also think is a great foreign horror movie. But again, if you hear me, of all people, recommending a foreign movie, you should take note because I do not do that. I don't hand those recommendations out willy-nilly. This is about the best horror movie I have ever seen, and I love it. So this is your mission now, my listeners. Go out and find this movie and enjoy it and suffer through it and then spring it on somebody unexpected and watch them react to that buried alive scene. It's horrific. Yeah. I was going to say it's got to be one of my favorite endings in any – like I said, I I call this a horror film – I, I think it would be up there with that last shot in Friday the 13th that we love so much. Yes, which is a cheap – I mean, we love it, but it's still a cheap jump scare. Sure. Yeah, this is this is on a whole other level. But uh, but if I had to make a list of, like, my top ten endings of horror films, oh, my God, this, this would be way high up there. Absolutely. And never let it be forgotten that it almost killed you when you were watching it last night. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to you, my hands were getting sweaty and getting some palpitations, you know. Uh, it, it's it just does it to you every time you watch it. Yep. Now that is a good movie when you know what's coming and you're still nervous about it. You don't want to see it. You know it's coming and yeah. it's still going to affect you. And I think that's why it reminded me of that Friday the Thirteenth shot in the canoe because every like well like like we've talked about before every time you know you know it's coming it gets you every single time. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there we go. Sporloch or however it's pronounced, the Dutch vanishing. Again, we cannot recommend this movie enough. I haven't done a horror movie in a while on staff picks. I've been saving this one for just the right host. So excited that you had a chance to come on. Uh, is there anything, yeah. Yeah, is there anything you want to plug any future appearance on staff picks you want to advertise here or anything? Oh, uh, well, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you tell me, um, see, I would see how much pressure you can put on me here. I would absolutely love to come back. Um, I mean, we've, we've, we've thrown a couple of titles out, you know, I would, I'm always down for Ghostbusters. I, I could talk about that movie endlessly. 
I'm trying to sell you on on Dragnet, but I know you don't like that movie. I know I'm probably one of the only people left on Earth that loves that movie. Yeah, Christopher and I will never agree on the Tom Hanks movie <laughs> Dragnet, which he thinks is one of the greatest movies ever, and I think is one of the worst movies ever. And we there's no middle ground. He's been working on me for years. I have a weird obsession with it. I've had it since it came out, and I, I don't expect people to understand. <laughs> but, um, another one I'd love to do is Gross Point Blank. I know you're kind of mad on that movie, too. But I love Gross Point Blank. It's one of my all-time favorite films. Just to give people a quick overview, why you have pitched Ghostbusters. And this is just a <laughs> teaser if we do this episode in the future. I've not committed to this yet. I'm not sure. Like, Ghostbusters is a beloved classic. Most people call it one of, if not the funniest movies of the 80s. But you have a bone to pick with some of the criticism <laughs> of it. Now, <laughs> are you prepared to say on the air why you want to do an episode on Ghostbusters? Sure. Uh, you know, it's been roughly my it's been my favorite movie off and on since 1984, since it came out um, for 30 plus years. I just thought it was an inoffensive sci fi horror comedy um, with, you know, loaded with great one liners. And then there was a sea change a couple years ago and suddenly the movie became problematic. Um, <laughs> and I see review after review after review now. Um, slamming Ghostbusters, which I think is a fairly inoffensive film. Um, but right about the time the the, uh, the reboot came out, all of a sudden it became this socio-political football, I guess we'll say. And uh, I think Mario and I are pretty much on the same page about the backlash. Mm -hmm. So um, I would love to get into dis discussing. I would love to just discuss the movie on its own merits, too. But we, you know, I would love to come back and kind of touch on that, too, the controversy and so like, you're very active on review sites like Letterboxd and stuff. And this is where you see these reviews. Mm. And it's like you said, it's very – it's almost pandemic now that almost every review is how problematic and offensive and inappropriate and how Ghostbusters couldn't be made anymore, correct? Yeah. It, it's it's just shocking to me. Um, I, I don't get it at all. I mean, it, it seems to be mostly younger people. Um, now, I get – you know, I get if people are like, oh, that movie wasn't very funny to me, but – the rants these people go on, huh. <laughs> I cannot understand why they have such vitriol for this movie. Yeah, it's such an inoffensive movie. Like, there's so many more racy or offensive or terrible movies from the 80s that were just designed to shock you and, like, push the boundaries. Ghostbusters yeah. was not one of them. I would have called that one of the most mild comedies of the 80s. Like, Revenge of the Nerds, I can kind of <laughs> almost get it. There's some stuff in there that, you know, I've actually been afraid to go back to that one in recent years because I remember seeing some, like, I don't know how well that's going to age. <laughs> but um, Ghostbusters, really? Like, I don't know. Okay, so we might do a Ghostbusters episode in the future. It just depends. I have to watch it again because, again, that one's so beloved. But I, I was not aware of this huge backlash against it. So that's very intriguing. But anyway. Well. It, it might just be a very, very vocal minority online. I mean, you know, that might be it. Because I, I noticed the ratings have tended to be about the same. Okay. So, you know, maybe they're not having as much of an effect as they – or an impact as they thought they were. I don't know. Okay. Well, before you sign off, anything you want to plug? How can people reach you? Uh, what do you got going on that you want people to know about? Uh, well, uh I, I do I write a lot of film reviews online, and I have a, I have a YouTube channel that I that I almost never use. Um, but uh, I, I do things under a pseudonym. So um, if anybody wants to check out my stuff, I'm I'm I'll, I'm frequently on Mario's page. So just hit me up if you see Christopher Charty on there. 
um, you know, just reply with a comment or, or send me a message or something, and I'll tell you where you can check out my other stuff. I write a lot of album reviews, too, but as I said, I, I do stuff under a pseudonym because I, I like privacy, so... All right. Absolutely. And as always, uh, I am Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. Thank you for listening. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll be looking for someone interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Watch out for the guy with his arm in a sling. See ya.